Welcome to another blood-soaked episode of American Hauntings, the podcast hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This is the season of the podcast where we take you behind locked doors and down the sketchy back alleys of Hollywood, the movie capital of the world, a place that's supposed to be all about palm trees, swimming pools, and movie stars, until it isn't. Hollywood is a place of sunlight and shadows, murder and mythology, and has been home to more cranks, kooks, lunatics, and murderers than you'll find in your average asylum. We're taking you on a one-way ride down the dark streets of Los Angeles in season five, the so-called City of Angels. And in these next two episodes, we're gonna introduce you to one of the city's many fallen angels who, like so many others who came to LA, became more famous in death than she ever was in life. These episodes, as with all of season five, which began with episode 70 and will end with, well, who knows, will reveal another sordid Hollywood tale of crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. But keep in mind the episodes in this season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. So please listen at your own peril. Lock all the doors, don't answer the phone, and for God's sake, don't go to Hollywood looking for fame and fortune. Instead, stay home and listen to the new episode of American Hauntings. On January 15, 1947, a housewife named Betty Bersinger left her home on Norton Avenue in the Lemert Park section of Los Angeles, bound for a shoe repair shop. She took her three-year-old daughter with her, and as they walked along the street, coming up on the corner of Norton and 39th, they passed by several vacant lots that were overgrown with weeds. The area was supposed to be developed with new housing before World War II, but the war slowed things down and they were now abandoned. As Betty walked a little further along, she caught a glimpse of something white over in the weeds. She wasn't surprised. It wasn't uncommon for people to toss their garbage out into a vacant lot. And this time, it looked as though someone had left a broken department store mannequin there. The dummy had been shattered, and the two halves lay separated from one another, with the bottom half lying twisted into what was admittedly a gruesome pose. Who would throw such a thing into an empty lot? Betty shook her head and walked on, but then found her glance pulled back at the ghostly white mannequin. She looked again and then realized that it was no department store dummy at all. It was the severed body of a woman. Betty let out a scream and immediately fled to a nearby house to call the police. Her call was answered by officers Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald, who arrived within minutes. When they found the naked body of a woman who'd been cut in half, they immediately called for assistance. The dead woman, it was noted, seemed to have been posed. She was lying on her back with her arms raised above her shoulders and her legs spread open. Cuts and abrasions covered her body and her mouth had been slashed so that her smile extended from ear to ear. There were rope marks on her wrists and ankles and neck and investigators later surmised she'd been tied down and tortured for several days. Worst of all was the fact that she had been sliced cleanly in two, just above the waist. It was clear that she'd been killed somewhere else and then dumped in the vacant lot overnight. There was no blood on her body and none on the ground where she'd been left. The killer had washed her off before bringing her to the dump site. No one in the area knew the girl and knew nothing about the murder. The only initial lead came from two different young men who had seen a 1936 or 37 black Ford sedan stop along the street 
early that morning. Well, the horrible nature of the case made it a top priority for the LAPD. Captain John Donahoe assigned his senior detectives to the case, Detective Sergeant Harry Hansen and his partner, Finnis Brown. By the time the detectives were contacted and could get to the scene, it was swarming with reporters, photographers, and a crowd of curiosity seekers, the morbid curious, if you will. Hansen was furious that bystanders and even careless police personnel were trampling all over the crime scene. Evidence was being destroyed, he knew, and he immediately cleared the area. Then, while he and his partner examined the scene, the body of the woman was taken to the Los Angeles County Morgue. Her fingerprints were lifted, and with help of the assistant managing editor of the Los Angeles Examiner, in exchange for information, of course, the prints were sent to the FBI in Washington using the newspaper's new sound photo equipment. Meanwhile, an examination of the body was started by the coroner's office. It began by detailing an incredible and horrifying variety of wounds to the young woman's body, although the official cause of death was, quote, hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. An autopsy revealed there were multiple cuts to the face and head, and of course the body had been severed into two parts. However, the deep cuts on the face were not done by the same instrument that had been used to slice the body in half. The slashed mouth exhibited the ragged cuts of a knife, while the mutilation and bisection of the body were carried out methodically with a surgical instrument, apparently by someone who was familiar with medical procedures. There were two different cutting instruments, two different cutting methods, one instrument used before death and one after. The fact that the body had been bisected by someone with advanced surgical knowledge was not disclosed at this time. And soon it would be discovered that the flesh that was cut from the victim's thigh had been a rose tattoo. That information was also not released. In fact, the autopsy was not made available to the public at all, which is odd since they're officially public records. But that didn't stop the officials from releasing false information. There was no indication that Jane Doe number one, as she was being called, had been raped. The examination turned up no sign of sperm or recent sexual intercourse. For some reason, though, the medical examiner decided to make public a false bit of information about the body. He claimed that the victim had a very shallow vagina, which would have made it impossible for her to have intercourse. Well, this wasn't true. But that bit of fake news has turned up in numerous books and articles since then. Regardless, even veteran morgue employees and detectives were shocked by the state of the unknown woman's body. One crime scene examiner stated, quote, This is the worst crime I've ever seen committed on a woman. No one who saw the body on January 15, 1947, from Betty Bersinger to the reporters, the detectives, the crime lab investigators, the uniformed officers, and the spectators would ever forget what they'd seen and none of them would ever be the same again. They seemed to sense that this was one of the worst murders that would ever occur in Los Angeles, and that would be haunted by it for the rest of their lives. It wasn't long after the FBI received the fingerprints of Jane Doe that they had a match for LA detectives. The victim of the brutal murder was Elizabeth Short, a 22-year-old woman who originally came from Massachusetts. During World War II, she had been a clerk at Camp Cook in California, which explained why her fingerprints were on file. 
Once the detectives had this information, they went to work finding out who knew Elizabeth Short, believing this would lead them to her killer. Instead, it took them into a complex maze that plunged them into the shadowy side of Los Angeles in search of a woman they learned was called the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short, like all the other pretty girls before and since, came to Hollywood to become famous. She wanted to be an actress, and most said she had the face for it. But she knew that wasn't all it took. She needed a hook, a gimmick, something to be remembered for. So when she went out at night to the various clubs and bars in the city, she was always dressed in black. And thanks to that pretty face and her stunning figure, men noticed her. She dyed her hair black too, and with her pale skin, the striking contrast got her noticed, even in Hollywood, where good-looking dames were a dime a dozen in the 1940s. Beth, as she preferred to be called, was also smart enough to know that looks weren't everything, and that to break into films, she had to know the right people. So she spent most of her time trying to make new acquaintances that she could use to her advantage and to make sure she was in the right nightclubs and spots. Here she was convinced she would come to the attention of the important people in the business. Beth had done some modeling before coming to Hollywood and men couldn't keep their eyes off her. She became part of the Hollywood party crowd, although her prospects for work in the movie business were pretty much non-existent. She didn't have much of an income and only seemed to eat and drink when others, usually her dates, were buying. She shared rooms with other people and borrowed money from her friends constantly, never paying it back. She never seemed to appreciate the hospitality given to her by others, either rarely contributing anything to where she was living and staying out most of the night and sleeping all day. She became known as a beautiful freeloader. Around this same time, the film The Blue Dahlia starring Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd was released. Some friends of Beth started calling her the Black Dahlia thanks to her dark hair and black lacy clothing. The name stuck and Beth began to immerse herself into the glamorous persona that she'd created and which eventually led to her death. Although she's remembered today as the Black Dahlia, Beth did not start out as a sexy vamp that haunted nightclubs in Hollywood. She was born on July 29, 1924 in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. Her parents, Cleo and Phoebe Short, moved the family to Medford, a few miles outside of Boston, shortly after Beth was born. Cleo Short did well for himself, making a very good living designing and building miniature golf courses. But he fell on hard times after the stock market collapse in 1929. Without a second thought, he abandoned his wife and five daughters and faked his own suicide. His empty car was discovered near a bridge and the authorities believed he'd jumped into the river below. Phoebe was left to deal with the bankruptcy and to raise the girls by herself. She worked several jobs, including as a bookkeeper and a clerk in a bakery shop, but most of their money came from public assistance. One day, she received a letter from Cleo, who was now living in California. He apologized for running out on his family and asked to come home. Well, Phoebe refused his apology and never allowed him to come back. She'd already proven to herself and everyone else that she didn't need him. Beth grew up to be a very pretty girl, always looking older and acting more sophisticated than she really was. Everyone who knew her liked her, although she had serious problems with asthma, she was considered very bright and very lively. She was also fascinated by the movies, which was her family's main source of affordable entertainment. She found an escape at the theater that she couldn't find in the day-to-day -day drudgery of ordinary life. After discovering that her father had returned from the dead, so to speak, Beth began writing letters back and forth with him. When she was older, he offered to have her come out to California and stay with him until she was able to find a job. Beth had worked in restaurants and movie houses in the past, but she knew that if she went to California, 
She wanted to be a star. She packed up and headed west to her father. At that time, Cleo was living in Vallejo and working at the Mare Island Naval Base. Beth hadn't been in town for long before the relationship between she and her father became strained. He complained about her laziness, poor housekeeping, and dating habits, and eventually he threw her out, and Beth was left to fend for herself. She went to Camp Cook and applied for a job as a cashier at the Post Exchange. It didn't take long for the serviceman to notice the new cashier, and she won the title of Camp Cutie of Camp Cook in a beauty contest. Beth was flirtatious and funny, but she wasn't easy. She was a sweet romantic girl who wanted to marry a handsome serviceman, preferably a pilot. After several uncomfortable encounters that went beyond holding hands, she left Camp Cook to stay with a girlfriend who lived near Santa Barbara. During this time, Beth had her only run-in with the law. A group of friends that she was out with got rowdy in a restaurant and the owners called the police. Since Beth was underage, she was booked and fingerprinted, but never charged. A kind policewoman felt sorry for her and arranged for a trip back to Massachusetts. But Beth had gotten a taste of California, and she knew she'd never be happy until she made it big. She didn't stay home for long before packing her bags and heading back to California, this time to Hollywood. Back in L.A., Beth met a pilot named Lieutenant Gordon Fickling and fell in love. He was exactly what she was looking for, and she began making plans for a wedding. But her plans were cut short when Fickling was shipped off to Europe. Beth then took a few modeling jobs, but discouraged, she went back east. She spent the holidays in Medford and then went to Miami, where she had relatives with whom she could live. Beth began dating servicemen, always with marriage as her goal, and she fell in love with, again, another pilot, Major Matt Gordon. A commitment was apparently made between them after he was sent to India. Sadly, though, Matt was killed in action, once again destroying Beth's dreams. Matt's death left Beth a little unbalanced. After a period of mourning during which she told people that she and Matt had been married and that their baby had died in childbirth, she began picking up the pieces of her old life and started contacting her friends. One of those was former boyfriend Gordon Fickling, who Beth saw as a possible replacement for her dead fiance. They began to write back and forth to one another and then met up in Indianapolis in August 1946, where they lived together in a hotel for a week. Beth was convinced the two of them were going to get married, but Fickling had no such plans. He would later tell police he told Beth that marriage was out of the question in a letter that he wrote to her in December 1946. He received a response from her a couple weeks later, he said, and in it she had written, I do hope you find a nice young lady to kiss at midnight on New Year's Eve. It would have been wonderful if we belonged to each other now. I'll never regret coming to see you. You didn't take me in your arms and keep me there. However, it was nice as long as it lasted. She also added that she desperately needed money, so Fickling wired her $100. It was the last contact that he ever had with her. Beth returned to L.A. and moved into the Hawthorne Hotel, which was just a little south of Hollywood Boulevard. It was known as a rendezvous for prostitutes who worked the Roosevelt and its popular nightclub, the Cinegrill. Beth didn't have any money, but two friends took her in. Soon her rent was being paid by a mysterious man, who drove a 1936 or 37 Black Ford sedan. Beth stayed at the Hawthorne Hotel for a month. She checked out on September 28th. The hotel clerk later recalled, quote, Miss Short was always getting behind in her rent. Whenever she did, a short, dark-complexioned man, about 35 or 40, came in and paid her bill. He used to drive an old Black Ford sedan and park it in front. When Beth left the hotel last September, she piled her baggage in the short, dark-complexioned man's car and drove off. 
Whoever this mystery man was, he drove Beth to a house at 6024 Carlos Avenue behind the Florentine Gardens Supper Club on Hollywood Boulevard. The club was owned by Mark Hansen, who owned theaters and a number of other L.A. clubs. He knew a lot of important showbiz people, mostly because of his connections to nightclubs, gambling, and prostitution. He was well known for grooming young women and kept a black book of actors and industry people who were always looking for a good time. Hansen eventually moved Beth into this house where she lived with a number of other young women. They were tasked with entertaining guests at Hansen's clubs. On any given day, a visitor to Hansen's house could find a dozen beautiful would-be actresses and models sunning themselves by the swimming pool. For Hollywood hopefuls in the 1940s, it was considered a step on the way to becoming a star to be linked with Hansen. The Florentine Gardens was one of Hollywood's most popular night spots. However, even though it booked some great headliners, the place never seemed able to escape its tawdry reputation as a hangout for Hollywood lowlifes. The floor shows were only one pasty spangle above burlesque, and the B-girls and the hookers were always there to make sure that the booze kept flowing and the customers were happy no matter what it took. There was also a secret card room upstairs where customers were regularly fleeced. It was also a front for the L.A. mob. Ben Siegel and Mickey Cohen had their own special tables at the club where they were seen in the company of pretty girls. Because Siegel controlled the Extras Guild, a Hollywood labor union, he could always get the girls from the Florentine Gardens a little work in the movies. As long as the favor was repaid, of course. Beth was moved into Hanson's house on September 28th by the short, dark-complexioned man that drove the black Ford sedan. Other girls who lived there heard Beth call him Morris. Was he the man who drove the Ford sedan that was seen parked on the street where Beth's body was found on January 15th? Detective Harry Hanson came to believe that Morris was the connection between Beth's Hollywood acquaintances and her murder. When he later tried to dig into this man, though, he found that Beth's friends were very uncomfortable talking about Morris or even mentioning his name. That's because Morris turned out to be Morris Clement, a minion of Ben Siegel and Mickey Cohen, and a pimp for the call girl ring run by Brenda Allen, one of L.A.'s most notorious madams who we talked about in an earlier episode in the season. On December 6th, Beth suddenly left town and went to San Diego. Before she left, she told her friend Ann Toth that she was leaving town because she was scared. But of what? Well, she never told anyone, but it might have had something to do with Morris Clement. Detectives later learned that Beth frequented a restaurant called Brittingham's, which was just around the corner from Columbia Studios, which made it popular with studio executives and employees. Beth had been seen there several times with Max Arnau, who was in charge of Columbia's talent department. Arnau was notorious for supplying Columbia studio heads with girls. Morris Clement, also on the talent department payroll, worked for Brenda Allen, and he drove girls to wherever Arno talent to go. A witness saw Clement and Beth talking together at Brittenham's on at least four occasions early in December 1946, just before she fled to San Diego. Detective Harry Hansen considered Clement to be high on the list of suspects in Beth's murder, but he was never mentioned by the police or by the press. It wasn't until the L.A. County District Attorney's Office opened its files on the Black Dahlia murder in 2003 that his name was discovered, more than 50 years after Beth was killed. Mob influence on a corrupt police department kept his name a secret. The last time that Beth was seen alive was at the Biltmore Hotel on January 9, 1947. She was waiting for someone to pick her up. 
Could it have been Morris Clement? Well, when Beth went to San Diego, she ended up staying at the home of Elvira and Dorothy French. Dorothy worked at the counter at the Aztec Theater, which stayed open all night. After one evening show, she found Beth sleeping in the seats. Beth told her she had left Hollywood because work was hard to find due to the actor strikes that were going on. Well, Dorothy felt sorry for her and offered her a place to stay at her mother's home. She meant that Beth could stay for a few days, but Beth ended up sleeping on the French's couch for more than a month. As usual, she did nothing to contribute to the household, and she continued her late-night partying and dating. One of the men she dated was Robert Red Manley, a salesman from L.A. with a pregnant young wife at home. He admitted being attracted to Beth later, but claimed that he never slept with her. They saw each other on and off for a few weeks, and then Beth asked him for a ride back to Hollywood. He agreed, and on January 8th, picked her up at the French house and paid for a hotel room for her that night. They went out together to a couple of different night spots and returned back to the hotel. He slept on the bed while Beth, complaining that she didn't feel well, slept in a chair. Red had a morning appointment but came back to pick her up around noon. She told him she was going back home to Boston, but first she was going to meet her married sister at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood. Manley drove her back to Los Angeles. He had an appointment at the home of his employer that evening at 6.30, so he didn't wait around for Beth's sister to arrive. She was making phone calls in the hotel lobby when he saw her last becoming, along with the hotel employees, the last person to see Beth Short alive. As far as the police could discover, only the killer ever saw her after that. She vanished from the Biltmore that night and then went missing for six days before her body was found in the empty lot. The investigation into Beth's murder was the highest profile crime in Hollywood of the 1940s. The police were constantly harassed by the newspapers and the public for results. Hundreds of suspects were questioned because it was considered a sex crime that meant rounding up the usual suspects and perverts that they could be interrogated too. Best friends and acquaintances were questioned as the detectives tried to reconstruct her final days and hours. Every lead that seemed hopeful ended up leading nowhere, and the cops were further hampered by the lunatics and the crazed confessions that came pouring in. While the police worked frantically, Beth's mother made the trip to Los Angeles to claim her daughter's body. Her father, who had not seen her since 1943, refused to identify her. Sadly, Phoebe Short had learned of her daughter's death from a newspaper reporter who had called her using the pretext that Beth had won a beauty contest and the newspaper wanted some background information about her. Once he gleaned as much information as he could, he informed her that Beth had not won a beauty contest. She'd actually been murdered. A few days after Beth's body was found, a mysterious package appeared at the offices of the Los Angeles Examiner. A note that had been cut and pasted from newspaper lettering said, here is the Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. Inside of the small package was Beth's social security card, birth certificate, photographs with various servicemen, business cards, and claim checks for suitcases, which she had left at the bus depot. Another item was an address book that belonged to club owner Mark Hansen. The address book had several pages torn out of it. The police attempted to lift fingerprints off the items but found that all of it had been washed in gasoline to remove any trace of evidence. The detectives then began the overwhelming task of tracking down everyone in the address book, and while Mark Hansen and a few others were singled out for interrogation, nothing ever came of it. 
In addition, the promised letters to follow arrived, but they contained no solid clues. To date, the Black Dahlia murder has never been solved. Over the years, though, many suspects have emerged, along with a number of false confessions and ridiculous stories and theories. Because of the lurid and mysterious nature of the crime, it seems to be one of those cases that everyone has an opinion about. At the time, the police suspected that the murderer might be a serial killer. The lipstick murders in Chicago had happened only two years before, and the Cleveland Torso murders were still unsolved, and still are, and it was surmised they might have something to do with the Black Dahlia. They didn't. Investigators ran down scores of leads and suspects, including nightclub owner Mark Hansen and Red Manley. And both were later cleared. Red simply had the bad luck to get involved with a woman who turned out to be as complicated as Beth and who ended up dead. Manley was given the third degree at police headquarters and only released after two polygraph tests. He was exonerated, but the case never really ended for him. Suspicion and mental problems plagued him for the rest of his life, and in 1954, his wife had him committed to the Patton State Hospital in San Bernardino. Reporter Will Fowler later said that the case, quote, destroyed their lives. There were also many anonymous calls that came in to newspapers and to police headquarters, including one that stated that Beth's killers had been two police officers, and there were also a lot of false confessions. In at least three cases, landlords reported suspicious behavior on the part of tenants they were trying to evict, and a woman in Barstow, California, gave false information in hopes of getting back at two old boyfriends who'd broken up with her. Other time-wasting confessions included a pharmacist who told police that he, quote, knew how to cut a body in half. He initially claimed to have killed Beth, but later admitted he was just kidding. A woman also confessed that Beth had stolen her boyfriend, so she'd killed her. When she was unable to pick Beth out of a photo array, though, it was confirmed that she'd made the whole thing up. One more promising lead involved an Army corporal and a combat veteran named Joseph DeMay. He was reported to the military police by another soldier who had argued with DeMay over money. After a 42-day furlough, the corporal was found with blood all over his clothing and a stack of newspaper clippings about the murder. He had little memory of what he may have done during his furlough. He told investigators, quote, It's possible I could have committed the murder. When I get drunk, I get rough with women. DeMay was sent to a psychiatrist, but was cleared of killing Beth. Doctors and abortionists were also high on the suspect list thanks to their medical knowledge. Three different doctors were linked to Beth through Mark Hansen and were looked at seriously by the police for a time. Most of them were ruled out right away, but one of them, Dr. Patrick O'Reilly, was thoroughly investigated. He was a good friend of Hansen's and frequented the Florentine Gardens. Allegedly, O'Reilly attended sex parties at Malibu with Hansen, but there's no record of Beth being present at these parties. O'Reilly did have a conviction for assault with a deadly weapon in conjunction with, quote, taking his secretary to a motel and sadistically beating her almost to death for apparently no other reason than to satisfy his sexual desires without intercourse, the file stated. He was quickly ruled out, but whether this was because he was innocent or because he was married to the daughter of an LAPD captain is unknown. Another suspect, although named many years later, was Dr. Walter Bailey, a surgeon who owned a house just one block south of the lot where Beth's body was found. He'd moved out in October 1946, but his estranged wife still lived there at the time of the murder. In addition, Bailey's daughter was a friend of Virginia Short, Beth's sister, and was the matron of honor at her wedding. When Bailey died in January 1948, his autopsy showed he was suffering from a degenerative brain disease. 
After his death, his widow alleged that his mistress knew a, quote, terrible secret about Bailey and claimed that this was the reason why the mistress was the main beneficiary in his will. If that secret was about Beth's murder, well, we'll never know. And we'll get to the other medical suspect in the next episode. With so much of the drama of the Black Dahlia case taking place in Hollywood, it's no surprise that some of the suspects were celebrities. At one point, folk singer Woody Guthrie, you know, the this land is your land guy, was considered a suspect in Beth's murder. He drew the attention of the police because of some sexually explicit letters and tabloid clippings that he sent to a woman in Northern California that he was allegedly stalking. The letters disturbed the woman so much she showed them to her sister in Los Angeles who contacted the police. Guthrie was pulled in and questioned by the police about the Black Dahlia, but was quickly cleared in the matter. Author Mary Pacios, who once lived next door to the Short family in Medford, Massachusetts, suggested filmmaker Orson Welles as a suspect. Her theory was based on Welles' violent temper and his creation of mannequins for a movie that was filmed three months before Beth's murder. They supposedly featured lacerations that were almost identical to those in the Black Dahlia murder, but they were cut out of the film. According to short family members in one of Beth's last letters home, she claimed that a movie director was going to give her a screen test. But of course, it's pretty hard to take such claims seriously based on the number of lies that Beth spun regularly and about her acting career. Pacios used other information about Wells to link him to the murder. She stated that he was familiar with the site where the body was found and that he used, quote, sawing a woman in half as part of a magic act he performed to entertain soldiers during World War II. Also, Wells applied for a passport on January 24, 1947, the same day that the killer mailed a packet to the Los Angeles newspaper. And then he left the country for an extended stay in Europe that lasted 10 months. He left without completing the editing of Macbeth, a film that he was both directing and starring in, and ignored repeated efforts by Republic Pictures to get him to return to Hollywood and finish it. It's really more likely that Wells was just a difficult actor and a director with an incredible ego than a murderer. But both Wells and Beth frequented Brittingham's restaurant in LA, and Pacios claimed that waitresses there believed that Beth was dating someone from Columbia Pictures at the time. Was Orson Welles the Black Dahlia killer? No, but he probably would have appreciated such a plot twist. So who was the Black Dahlia killer? Well, in the next episode of the podcast, we'll take a look at a few other more infamous suspects in the case and try to make some sense out of the confusion that still exists around Beth Short and all the lies that have been told about her story after all these years. Come back in two weeks and you'll hear the rest of the story. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, let's like speak in tongues. 
Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everything that it doesn't even is not even recorded, but I can still hear it. Oh, okay. Like when I kept, I kept. You probably haven't listened to the recording, Jeff. But mm. There are a few couple times I'm stopping. Like there's a big fucking truck outside, and you probably can't even hear it. But yeah, but you I can hear, hear it. Yeah. Huh. So. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right, you ready? Yep. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hi. Hey. How are you? You always have this way, right before we start, you always got to pull out something that brings me down. (laughs) Every time. Yep, that's my specialty. Yeah, every time. Hey, I complimented your fly new headphones. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, I did get some new headphones, right? You did. They look nice. Yeah, I do have a way of just kind (laughs) of just ruining the mood right before I'm asking you to go live. And and go, hey, act like you're happy. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, all right. Oh, man, this is when I need Lisa here. Uh Uh-huh. 
that yeah. helped me help me bring the mood back up. Right. Well, has, any, has anything good been going on? Like, oh yeah. You got a no, new book? Uh, out? Everything's fine. It's not. Uh, you know, it's not that. It's just always uh, some piece of news. You know. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, good thanks. Right but, at the end. No, everything's good. I mean, everything's busy right now. Um, you know, as more and more stuff. You know, oh, people are getting excited about getting out and doing stuff. Finally, yeah. you know. And uh, we've started our tours back in Alton. We've started our tours back in Springfield and Chicago, too. So um, we're excited about the change in weather and more and more people are, are getting jabbed. So that's, you know, with more of that happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, we hope to hope to see everybody soon. Um, this coming Saturday, because this is um, Tuesday before this Saturday, uh, I will be in Alton doing a book signing at the newly reopened American Hauntings Vault. Uh, we had books and shirts and all that stuff, and uh, I'll be there from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, I know it's not that long, mm -hmm. but that's probably long enough because I got some stuff I got to do in the afternoon, right. and uh, I have an event that night, and we have an Alton Hauntings tour that night. So, if, busy. Uh, yeah, if people are going to be in the area, we hope they'll stop by, especially if they're you know going to be coming on the tour that night or our first of the season. Um, come by early if you get a chance. Um, and in speaking of books, my my new book just came out the mm -hmm. one that i had been keeping secret for a long time that was the uh, the edgar Allan poe book nevermore uh which is uh, you know poe's haunted life and and really uh, probably a good half the book delves into his death and you know the mystery surrounding his death what happened to him for the five days before and you know what i mean no one even knows what he died of for sure i mean there's just so many oh, okay. stories out there and so that was one of those things i've just always been interested in so i just decided you know we still had some time left in the uh pandemic that uh, it was time for another project so i secretly did that one i didn't even tell i didn't even i didn't tell you mm -mm, what it was i, no I didn't even tell lisa uh, she didn't until i started posting the pictures as clues mm -hmm. on my uh, like facebook that. page yeah it was kind of fun and until i started doing that um she didn't even know i was working on anything so dang yeah, so, what did you think you were doing I, well just <laughs> get regular work oh, okay. or regular non-work <laughs> whatever around. yeah so anyway but i will have copies on hand on saturday if you come to the book signing otherwise you can get autograph copies in the mail if you haven't already because it actually came out on the 16th so last weekend it came out so we also had the new issue of the morbid curious out too i don't have um, that one yet no not yet it's uh issue number three uh, we're back on our regular schedule we did that you know that uh, valentine's, valentine's day yeah. one uh kind of off off schedule but um this one uh is our regular schedule for uh, spring and it just came out too so if you are uh, interested in the magazine you can get it um, it is available uh, we also finally put together a package where you can order the first three issues so if you haven't tried it yet um, you know for a discount you can get all three if you order them all at the same time so awesome yeah yeah so anyway we've got river road tours coming up we got more dinners and things coming up the bell witch uh, we got a poe dinner donner party haunted hotels wyatt earp uh, the hell hath no fury then you know we've got another one of those coming up in august so it's a lot of stuff going on so if you're interested you can go with the, to americanhauntings.net that, that'll get you everywhere yeah i mean just give them one website address it's yeah, just easier smart. right instead of trying to give out all the different ones but yeah so yeah there's a lot going on so we uh we hope to start seeing uh more of you who haven't been out and around the last you know i mean none of us really were over the last 13 months or so but we did start to kind of 
you know, see people when mm-hmm. we open back up at the end of last summer in small groups. So it'll be nice to get people out and around again. So just feel normal. Yeah. Just a, at least a little bit for a little while. It'd be nice. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so I, I do this every time, but listener reviews and ratings Jesus. as of this morning, we had 999 ratings <laughs> and we still have our five star rating. I just something about it for my ego. I just want a thousand ratings. Oh, I know. It's just kind of fun. It's yes. fun to have a, you know, a, a date that we can, you know, that we can, or not a date, but a number to shoot right, for. Right. So we were talking about, you know, this was episode, you know, we recorded, this is episode 82. Yep. So we're getting closer and closer to 100. And I, Lydia Rhodes had asked me, uh, what are we going to do for episode 100? And I said, I don't know. We, hmm. we may still be in the middle of Haunted Hollywood. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, we, we might have to take a break to do something special for issue 100. She said that we should do, like, read all our bad reviews as, like, mean tweets. Oh, that would be uh, really You know, funny, it might be actually. kind of fun. So Because we did get a mean one. We did, um, you know, with, that's what Cody hit me with right before we started recording from someone who, you know, was angry that I expressed my opinion about something on our own podcast, yeah. but you know, whatever, they're not going to listen anymore, so they don't have to hear them anymore. And that's fine. They don't so, just remember yeah. it was flavor aid, not Kool-Aid. Anyway, yeah. this first well, not only that, but you can't even spell Kool-Aid and you don't know how to spell new as in K-N-E-W. So really, is it a big loss? Are we talking about a big loss Should here? We're talking, this is where, you know. Uh, the Darwin thing comes into effect. It proved my point. Was angry about my comment about Darwin and uh, and then just went on to prove my point. So there you go. Anyway, this whatever. This first nice review is titled <laughs> Great and Informative. It's from Thor, oh boy, L-C-L-F-M-C. I uh, started listening a few weeks ago and uh, being a former law enforcement officer. I'm guessing that's what Leo means. Um, I, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a Leo, but that's a different one. Um, I find it interesting and informative without the monotone storytelling. I've been binging from the beginning. Except of- for the whole beginning. Monotone story. Yeah, you got some infections every now and then. I've been binging. You should hear the the mistakes. They are those are anything but monotone. You come up with some creep, especially with the cat last episode. Man, God, I love him to death. But man, he decides that when everything's quiet and silent in the office and all the doors are closed, that's the best time to get the zooms. Oh yeah, of course. And run crazy all over the office. Welcome to having a cat. Yeah. Well, no kidding. Said I've been binging from the beginning, trying to keep up with the current episodes. Great job guys. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for that review. This next one uh, is titled binging now and love it. It's from wolf underscore digs Says I'm binging on the new Orleans season for research on an upcoming audio drama. And they make the research informative and entertaining and spooky uh, with the opening narratives. Guys, are fun to listen to also this person messaged me on instagram i was just trying to check to see who it was um but i don't have service in here and said i don't know why it like came up as my son's you know uh, itunes name or whatever but that was me just wanted to like uh, she was like telling me that she left oh. a review um <laughs> i thought you meant your son i'm like yes, hey my dude son. there's some things you have not told yeah me we're, yet, well so. we're close but we're not come <laughs> yeah. on um yeah so thank you for that i and also um I'll message you on Instagram, but whenever that, I love audio dramas, especially podcasts and stuff mm-hmm. like Limetown, Black Tapes Podcast, Tannis, all that stuff. So well, I, and know. I got some people last time I, I was pushing the Battersea Poltergeist oh, podcast. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of people who contact me to tell me how much they liked it. Awesome. It is really good. Awesome. Um, and it's, you know, it is a nonfiction, but it is dramatized mm-hmm. and that's what makes it cool. Um, yeah. I have also think I've recommended Old Gods of Appalachia too. If I haven't recommended it, I will. Okay. Um, that's a really good podcast. If you like um like southern folk horror like gothic southern mm. gothic kind of stuff but it's it's definitely a, an american folk horror 
mm-hmm. type of podcast, um, which I, I'm a big fan of folk horror anyway. So I really like when, because it's very British, but I like it when you can bring it over to the United States. And I tried to, when I did my Donner Party book, I tried to build that as American folk horror, because it is. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a perfect example of it. Uh, but the Appalachia thing is, uh, it's kind of like, um, it's folk horror mixed with H.P. Lovecraft, and it's dramatized, and it's good. Yeah, it's it a good podcast. Awesome. That's a good one. Uh, so I read. I would recommend it if you like that kind of thing. But definitely, uh, definitely the Battersea Poltergeist. If you haven't a chance to check it out. Yeah, so. I haven't. I haven't listened to any of those in such a long time. I think, especially once the pandemic happened, I started listening to things that um, were either comedy or that I already knew the ending to because it just <laughs> was very reassuring. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think I'm ready to get back into something fun like that. So maybe <laughs> I'll check it out. This last review is titled "Informative and Funny." It's from. Pagan Moon 7 says, I love history told with facts. You make it entertaining as sometimes fact-based history can get a little dull. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, You are both top-notch. Thank you so much for that. So, okay, this episode, I wanted to let you know, when I was doing my outlines yesterday and the day before, um, I, as you know, I like uh, I like metal music, so I decided it would be appropriate to listen to the band, The Black Dahlia Murder, which I haven't listened to them since high school. Yeah, I'm not either. A, not, a not a huge, huge fan, fan of death metal. I like death yeah. corner, I like death metal, but if you have found this podcast by mistake, I just wanted to say, <laughs> yeah. a couple of my favorite um, favorite songs were uh, Throne of Lunacy, What a Horrible Night, I Will Return, Christ Deformed, Death Mass Divine, and Into the Everblack, so if you, if you found this podcast by looking for the band, those are my favorites. Um, okay, I want to start off each of these episodes actually with um, a question, so this will be a different one from the next episode, but can you talk to me just a little bit about why is this case so romanticized? Is it because it's like the epitome Uh, of the horrific Hollywood tragedy? Yeah, I guess. It is, um, everything everything about this story, about the Black Dahlia, is is a, and I I mentioned this, and I mentioned it more in, in part two, but it is one of those, like the epitome of, uh, the warning of why you should never go to Hollywood to make it big, yeah. you know, as a young woman. Um, it's Welcome to the Jungle, mm-hmm. um, yeah. 1940s style, um, because, it, you know, it was it's post-World War II, and really this was the first really big graphic case, especially in Los Angeles, murder case post-World War II, because we, we forget how... Um, or maybe don't know how important, I mean, that era was in California because you have all these naval bases. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, the part of our country that's the closest to Japan um, and to, you know, Hawaii where, you know, we Pearl Harbor attack. And there, there were a number of times when there were Japanese submarines spotted off the coast. So people were really on high alert on the West Coast Mm -hmm. during World War II. And so when, when the war was finally over, it was such a feeling of relief for everybody. And then, you know, barely a year goes by and this case blows up. Mm-hmm. Now, there were a lot of other and, and, and actually coming up in, a, in one of the next episodes we're going to do is going to be about some of the other murders and disappearances that were taking place involving young women at the same time. Um, including a, a, a really fairly famous unsolved mystery of disappearance of a of a kind of another Beth Short. Um, she, you know, came to Hollywood as a starlet, had some, some very small roles, and then disappeared and became um, not more famous, not a, definitely never as famous as Beth, but um, but fairly famous mm-hmm. anyway. 
And um, so there were other things going on, but for whatever reason, I think the horrificness of the crime was a big part of it. Plus, she had kind of a persona Mm -hmm. already, even though she wasn't, and only known to like Hollywood, you know, some insiders, some show business people, and a lot of lowlifes, because this was the world she was moving through, trying to get out of it. But there's, once you get into that, it's really hard to get out of it. And she was, you know, moving in some, some, you know, really sketchy circles. Mm-hmm. Um, I had um, met Catherine Ramslin is a true crime writer and she's done lots and lots of books. And she, um, I've known her for quite a few years and years ago, and I, I don't even remember what year it was, but I want to say maybe, I don't know, 2014, something like that. Um, I had gotten the Black Dahlia tattooed on my back, mm-hmm. big portrait of Beth Short on my back. And I had gone out to Gettysburg that I'd gotten it in Pennsylvania, a friend in Pennsylvania. And we, Renee and I had gone out to Gettysburg and we had gone to uh, Mark Nesbitt's house, uh, the ghost of Gettysburg author. And we were at Mark's and Catherine was there that weekend and we were talking and, and you know, they uh, we were shown off the tattoo and Catherine just shakes her head. She said, what is it with you men? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, what is it with you men who want to put her on such a pedestal? I just don't get it. Hmm. This is a girl who lied about everything and, you know, lied to all her friends, used people. And I said, I know, but it's just something about it. It's just something about this story. It's, it has, it's been one that has appealed to me since I think probably the very first time I ever heard about the Black Dahlia. And I was probably 10 or 11 years old, the first time I ever heard about this case. And I've found it intriguing ever since, even though it's a, you know, this isn't a serial case. This isn't, I think if it had been solved, you wouldn't care as much. Well, I don't think anybody would. I think it would have faded away into yet another, you know, Hollywood crime story. I, I don't, I mean, we might talk about it, but not the way that we do. There wouldn't be all these, you know, all the books devoted to it, all the the interest in it. It just wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't. Um, but because it's unsolved, it's kind of like the Jack the Ripper murders. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a handful of murders that took place. Yes, they were horrible. Yes, they were super violent. The victims, for the most part, have been completely forgotten by most people. There was a great book that came out, I think, last year called The Five. Mm-hmm. And it's about the victims of Jack the Ripper instead of Jack the Ripper. Um, but we care because it's unsolved. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's has remained unsolved all these years, and that's why people are really, you know, still there are so many books and so much attention. Same way with the Black Dahlia. Hmm. Well, okay, that's a very good so explanation. Your answer. Uh, okay, so let's dive in. So January fifteenth, nineteen forty-seven, Betty Bursinger and her three-year-old uh, daughter leave their home in L.A. She catches a glimpse of something white in the weeds. Uh, she thought it was a mannequin split into two parts, which is annoying. But once she realizes it's a body, she <laughs> yeah. decides she's going to call the police. Officers Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald arrive. The dead woman had been posed, arms raised above her shoulders, legs spread open, cuts and abrasions. Chelsea grin. Um, I so I was looking at the crime scene photos. Yeah, there's, they're they're there's, awful. There's colorized versions of them too. And I was I was talking to somebody about this, and uh, she was like, "Okay, I know you didn't ask for this, but can will you send them to me?" I was like, "Do you really want to see this?" And I said, "How about I send you the link if you want to click on it, yeah. do it." And she was shocked. So I yeah. would say they're out there, but be warned if they you are. want to look. They're graphic. Um, that's well. you know when I when I you know, present on this particular case that the photos are all there. So mm-hmm. writing about it and telling the story is a little differently. Um, it's kind of the, the difference here is that 
I was I was talking to Lisa about the difference between the uh, the Marion Parker case that we just did, yeah, and all the people who have told me how graphic and disgusting and how freaked out they were and and stomach churning that that episode was. And all I say is, well, I did warn you, you know. Yeah. But the difference is, is that there aren't any photographs mm-hmm. that are out there of what happened to Marion. Thank um, God. Yeah. There, I mean, there are a couple of photographs of her covered in the morgue. So, I mean, but that's it. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's nothing like the black Dahlia photos. It's out there. Everyone's seen it. So when you talk about it in this podcast, it doesn't have the same effect because I don't have to try to paint a picture with words here. Sure. We've all seen the picture. If you're listening to this, you've probably seen yeah. the, the after effects of this murder and you've seen her sliced in two. You've seen her face mutilated. You've seen where the rose tattoo was cut off her leg. Mm-hmm. You've seen all these things. And um, so I didn't have to do that. It's just, this is just as graphic. The other thing I think that makes it different is Beth was an adult barely an adult um but she was an adult marion was 12 years old Mm -hmm. so that makes a big difference too yeah no that's a good point uh there's no blood on her body or the ground and she'd been washed off the only lead was that two young men had seen a black ford sedan along the street earlier that morning captain john donahoe donahoe donahue Mm -hmm. okay assigned his senior detective to the case detective sergeant harry hansen and finnis brown of course, people are Again, trampling. a couple of those guys that are, you know, our, Badass our, our crime noir guys, yes, you know. I love it. So. I, just, I bet the, like, the trench coats and raincoats they right, probably exactly. had. Right, exactly. Fedoras. Oh, yeah, they, in the photos, there's a photo of them at the crime scene, and they look like they walked out of a Raymond Chandler book. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, they're, they're There's a reason that's like per- a, perfect stereotypical. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess it's not a stereotype if it's true, right, you know. Right. And there they are, you know. People, of course, are trampling all over the crime scene by the time they arrive. Uh, so her prints are sent off to the FBI in DC using um, the examiner's sound photo equipment, which is the early fax machine. Okay, that's what I know. figured, but yeah. I, I wanted to ask about yeah. it. Uh, official cause. It, of death. it took like, it took like an hour to send a to send a God. page. No, seriously, it really did. It I'm not surprised. Hours to send it. But. I know. I shouldn't laugh, but um, it's why I have you know the technology I have today. But anyway. it went through telephone lines. I mean, it was an early fax machine. So it's great. and I make fun of a fax machine like I could ever build one and figure <laughs> out how it works. Like absolutely not. Uh, official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. She's obviously cut in half by somebody who knew what they were doing. This fact's not disclosed at the time. Like you said, flesh cut from her thigh. Um, the autopsy's not made available to the public at all, which was odd. False information is leaked about the victim having a well, shallow and that's, vagina. That, that's, well, and they wanted to keep um, things stuff. secret yeah. because, you know, that way. I mean, I think they knew that they were going to get a lot of nuts. Yep. Uh, with this case, plus it's Hollywood, so I mean, everyone, half the people on the street are nuts. So right. um, they knew they were going to get a lot, so they just decided that they would keep something secret. This thing about her body, I, I don't know how that got started. I don't know why they did it. Uh, maybe, to, maybe for the same reason to put it out there, but for whatever reason, I've seen it over and over again in different books and articles and stuff. Yeah, and it's not true. I mean, it's absolutely not true, but. I don't, I don't know why they said it. <laughs> sure. It's just weird. You very, know? Yeah, it's, it's very a, weird. An odd little tidbit to leak, I guess. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the victim. Elizabeth Short, 22 years old from Massachusetts. 
you said her fingerprints were on file because she was a clerk during World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was looking into this a little bit more, there was a Rolling Stone article claimed that they were on file because she'd been arrested for underage drinking. And I just well, she ask, was arrested for that. underage drinking, but she was never charged. She, right. That's not why. So I'm wondering, how do you do research when you, how do you figure this shit out when there's so much misinformation and things you... <sighs> well, it's would, hard. I mean, it's hard. You have to... little detail. Well, again, though, it's, it's beautiful because we have so much access now that we didn't used to have. Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, in 2003... When they opened up those files yeah, yeah. and made them available to the public, I went to L.A. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I went out there to go through the files. I mean, I wanted to see them firsthand. Damn. I mean, that's how I knew about the thing with her vagina and all this other stuff. None of that stuff was available until then. That's mm-hmm. that's when they opened it up. And um, it, it was a big deal. I mean, the Internet was still... F- not new at that point, it had been around for eight or nine years, but that's where I found out that they were going to open this stuff up and that you could come and see it. I mean, you could come and go through the files or at least read the information in the files. You couldn't yeah. go through the the original files, but you could see all the information. They made it available to what, the public. So what, what is it, what is that like? You go to a police station, a building and they, yeah, it was a, actually, it was done. I went to a library and mm-hmm. they had the files available that you could look at on a computer that's how I looked at stuff. Huh. Were you like the only one doing it then? or uh, uh, Well, the only one that was there that day, but I'm yeah. sure there were other people doing it. Sure. I, I'm positive there were plenty of other people who were doing it. I, I was not the only one. I just right. wanted to see it. I didn't know if it was like a line or something. No, 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 or, no. no. Okay. I just wanted to see it. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I had other reasons for going, but I made that sure. part of my trip. You know, huh. was to go to look at that stuff just to see it, you know, because he'd always heard about it, but they never opened anything up. I think by 2003, they realized that this is never going to get sold. Yeah, you why know? not? So interesting. Yeah. So she comes to Hollywood, of course, to become famous, like we talked about. She had the face for it, uh, but she needed a shtick. So she went to various clubs and bars uh, at night in all black, dyed her hair black. She had pale skin, so that contrast really helped. And she got attention. And basically, I summed it up. You said basically she's good at networking, uses her looks to her advantage. And yeah. is that a good way to say it? Okay. So didn't have much of an income, shared rooms, borrowed money, didn't pay it back, mostly ate when her dates, bought her food. She came known as a beautiful freeloader. It's awfully reminiscent of my 2020. It brings a lot of <laughs> Well, bells. she she was just a chronic and a chronic liar. Yeah. And and But, uh, you know, I talk about it. I obviously wrote a book about this case, but um, I... I, I've never found that it wasn't that was that wasn't anything she did maliciously because people liked her. Mm-hmm. She was friendly. She just couldn't help herself. Yeah, just one of those people who just lied for no reason. Mm-hmm. And I've I've met them. I've oh, met people sure. like that who just for whatever reason just decide to lie about everything, man. Yeah. And I I don't I don't understand it, but people do it, and I don't. I mean, I can't wrap my head around it why yeah. it is but i've known people that would just lie about things just for absolutely no reason yeah that don't matter yeah they, it, it doesn't matter i mean i you know i they'll hear something i i knew somebody who i don't know the subject one night came up we're in chicago and subject came up that about pearl jam something about pearl jam who then this person tells me that eddie vetter's her cousin no, he isn't, you know, and it's like, where the fuck, why? And yeah. is completely serious about it. And you start to wonder, do they think it's true? I mean, have they convinced themselves that this stuff is true yeah. in their head? And she seems to be somewhat 
delusional in many instances. I mean, yeah. she's, you know, we, I know we haven't gotten that far in your, in, you know, going back over this stuff, but you know, she's every time she meets a guy and she starts to go on a few dates with him, then she decides that starts making plans for them to get married. And then when, you know, when one guy dies, she starts telling people they'd secretly got married and that they'd a lost kid, a yeah, child yeah. and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, did she believe this in her head? I, I don't know, know. I don't know. But I mean, that just made her all the things she got involved with. And I think she went from one bad situation to another, mm-hmm. you know, always just trying to stay above the surface. And, you know, I mean, that's what got her killed more than anything. It, that's what got her killed. Right. Is right. this delusional thing that she had that ran through her mind that everything was going to be, you know, coming up roses if she could just find the right guy yeah you know and and be a star you know so yeah so her friends start calling her the black dahlia after the film the blue dahlia starring veronica lake and alan ladd was released around that time which i would recommend if you yeah if you want to see a good crime noir movie that's a good one all right besides that veronica lake's a knockout yep and alan ladd's pretty cool except super short fair enough he was in shane and uh Okay, he I remember standing on a box. Oh, so short. I didn't you know, know that. Yeah. Cool guy, but very short. Very short. Yeah. Uh, her early life. So she's born on July 29th, 1924 in Hyde Park uh, to Cleo and Phoebe Short. Her dad built mini golf courses. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, it's roaring 20s. I yeah. Mean, you know, that's that. You get away. You could do a lot of crazy things before a crash. Sure, you know, sure. And a crash comes along and suddenly people don't really need miniature golf courses right. anymore. And apparently he doesn't need to take care of his family. So he <laughs> yeah. abandons his wife, yeah. five daughters, fakes his own death. This guy really went all <laughs> yeah, out. He's a real winner. God, yeah. Phoebe had to keep everything going by herself. Cleo apologized from California, but she wasn't having it. Good for her. Yeah. Um, everyone seemed to like Beth. She was bright and lively, fascinated by movies, begins writing letters back and forth to her father, and that's kind of how she packs up to go out there. But eventually he throws her out, gets the job at yeah, Camp... He's a real prize. Yeah, he Won't even sucks. identify her body. I yeah, mean, he's, he, he you know, sucks. he's a winner. Gets the job at Camp Cook, uh, wins some dumb award for being attractive, essentially. Camp Cutie of Camp Cook. Yes, that. Uh, she, she and some friends get into trouble, like we mentioned. She's sent back home. Uh, she wasn't happy, goes back to Hollywood as quickly... Or goes back to California, but this time to Hollywood. So let's talk about Hollywood a little bit. She falls in love with a pilot named Lieutenant Gordon Fickling, but he's deployed to Europe. Uh, goes out east, falls in love with another pilot, Major Matt Gordon, who's killed in action, so she just can't really catch a break. This is the one you now, mentioned. Now, and I think that, I think he might have been a little more, I mean, as we'll, as we'll soon see, yeah. Gordon Fickling was not exactly a, Mm-mm. you know, was not exactly the marrying type. Now, Matt nope. Gordon, Matt might have been, because whatever happened between them, I think, was probably a lot more serious. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, he's killed in action. And I know that she did have contact with his family, his Aww. mother and sister and things like that. But she just really went off the deep end yeah. after he died. So Yeah. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. So she, she eventually she has another long fling with Fickling again, but he's not into her, like you said. Uh, she writes him a sweet but sad note and asks for $100. I swear I've received these same notes asking for even, <laughs> everything up to the $100. She goes back to L.A., uh, moves into the Hawthorne Hotel. Friends take her in. Eventually, her rent is paid by a mysterious man who drove a black Ford sedan. He's the one who picked her up when she finally moved out of the hotel. Drives her to a house on Carlos Avenue behind uh, Florentine Gardens Supper Club. Is that mm-hmm. is, what's a supper club? Just um, a, like a dinner spot? Yeah, like a dinner. Th- they would have floor shows and things, yeah. and they would have bands that. Um, and you know, this was a this was a place that a lot of people went to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, they would have headline, you know, big headliners, the big bands and stuff of the era. But um, as I mentioned, though, that even though this place was, you know, popular, it um, it could never really get away from the the, the yep. seediness, uh, you know, with, 
you know, the, the, the burlesque shows where the girls who danced and stuff were, you know, I, I, I was proud of the line one pasty spangle away above burlesque, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, they kept the cash flow and there were always prostitutes around and then you got mob guys. Yep. So it's essentially, it's the bada bing. Except with from The Sopranos. No, uh, just kidding. I'm, it's not. It's not. It's not a strip club. But is that what the club's called? I've watched yeah, like the, the bada first bing. Like eight episodes, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but it's that's the bada it. bing. But yeah, it's um. But yeah, they, it's it's not. It's not quite that. Okay. But it's it's still, it's still not the greatest. And and see, this is the this is what she's sliding into at uh-huh. this point. She's you know instead of going up in Hollywood, she's starting to go down yeah. and things are getting a little worse and a little worse. I mean, right now she's at the Florentine gardens and she's, you know, still got a chance to, you know, be in a, in a somewhat reputable place, even mm-hmm. though we have, you know, mob guys hanging around and, you know, at least they're spending money and she's, you know, her job is to make sure that guys buy drinks and hang out and stuff. I mean, you're, you're one step above hooker at this point. Yeah. And that's the next rung on the ladder, mm-hmm. which I've, always believe that's where she ended up next. Sure. Uh, because then, you know, with Morris Clement, who is, you know, mm-hmm. as we know, I mean, as has been proven, was, a, you know, a procurer for for um, Brenda Allen. Yep. And that's who he worked for, who Brenda Allen, and then in turn works for Siegel and Cohen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she's she's flirted with this seediness, and but, you know, there's another there's another step down. Yeah. And she she takes it. Oof. Well, you just covered a lot of ground there. Uh, but yeah. December 6th, Beth suddenly left town for San Diego because, quote, she was scared. So the plot kind of starts to thicken. Uh, Beth frequented a restaurant by Columbia Studios called Brittingham's with Max uh, Arnau, mm-hmm. who, who ran Columbia's uh, talent department, I guess, yeah. in more ways than one. Uh-huh. Uh, Hanson considered him to be uh, high on the suspect list, but this wasn't known for more than 50 years when files were opened uh, on the case, probably thanks to the mob kind of covering some oh, stuff yeah. up. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. The last time Beth's seen alive, it's at the uh, Biltmore Hotel in January 9th, 1947. She's waiting for someone to pick her up. So when she stayed in San Francisco, she stayed with... Um, San Diego. Oh, I'm sorry. San, no, that's okay. Uh, she stays with Elvera and Dorothy French. Who she didn't even know. Yeah, just found her sleeping she, in a Yeah, she theater. was just down there on the... Literally living on the street. Yeah. And it was an all-night theater, so you buy a ticket, you stay for as many shows as you want, and she was sleeping in the seats, and this girl felt sorry for her, mm. you know, and said, hey, why don't you, you know, come over? Well, you can crash on our couch for a few nights, I guess, you know, she seemed nice, but then of course, Beth being Beth stayed for a month and didn't Terrible. do anything to help out. You Terrible know, house guest. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a lot more detail about it. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, Dorothy had a brother. And so Elvira complained about how Beth would leave like pantyhose and lacy underwear <laughs> everywhere. Yep. And you had all this, you know, and you know, had all this, this fancy lacy lingerie and underwear and stuff that she couldn't possibly have afforded on her own. Yeah. Uh, because, well, and like I said, I believe that at this point, this, you know, she was, she was an escort mm-hmm. at this point. I don't think she was a on the street hooker, but I, she was definitely an escort. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I sincerely believe that. Got it. Um, so during this time she, she dated Robert Red Manley, who had a pregnant wife. So cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah he's a real, prize too yeah he um, eventually drives her back to la to the um to the hotel and she makes a phone call is this when she makes a phone call from the laguna beach pay phone yeah well yeah I, actually i talk more i some more detail about this last uh-huh. trip in the next episode okay cool uh I did, but yeah I she did yeah yeah she to... did um 
you know, but he did drive her back and took her to the Biltmore um, after she dropped off some of her luggage at the train station because, mm. or the bus station, because she was planning on leaving town. Right. Uh, but told him that she still had somebody that she needed to meet. She told him it was her sister, but Jenny, her sister, said, no, we mm-hmm. had no plans to meet. Um, he, but he didn't wait around. I'll get more into yeah. that next. Well, yeah, he had a work thing that he was supposed to be at. A pregnant uh, wife. That evening, pregnant shit, wife at yeah. home. Well, he was a salesman, and he was on the road. And, you know, I mean, we don't hear that much anymore, but there used to be this whole big thing back in the, like, Don Draper madman mm-hmm. days about there there were t- what you called traveling salesman jokes okay. and these were like dirty jokes told about traveling salesmen huh. who would sleep at a you know with the farmer's daughter and all this stuff and this that used to be a thing okay. you know in the back in the like men's esquire kind of days you know what i mean the, yeah. the don draper days hmm. uh, so you know he's a He's a salesman on the road and, you know, yeah. how that goes. And so, you know, he's picked up this girl, which he would later claim he never slept with, which I don't believe that either. Yeah. But whatever. Anyway, he dropped her off there, but then couldn't wait around. And then the only people who ever saw her after that, that we know, are the the staff there at the hotel who saw her hanging around the lobby mm-hmm. and saw her in the ladies' room and that kind of thing. So, so maybe, so you're saying there might be an untapped area of comedy that hasn't come back around uh, yet? Oh yeah, I, I don't could... think it'll. I don't think it ever will. Oh, I don't right. think most people have any idea what a traveling salesman is too much these days because, well, especially in the last year, nobody's left their house. That's true. So you don't even go into the office anymore, let alone go on the road. So you don't need to remind me. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the investigation, and we're going to get way more into investigation suspects and things sure. in, in the next part but um the investigation so this is the highest profile crime like you said in hollywood of the 1940s tons of false confessions uh best father refused to id the body it's end up so her mother did the it's, worst thing and it's that's the worst story yeah it's fucked up i how think she more than out. anything that's the one thing about that story that bothers me the most is how she found out yeah that beth was dead horrible it's really horrible oh man Just, I mean, can you imagine? No. I mean, yes, I can. It's a reporter. Oh, well, yeah. I can imagine sure. it, especially sure. back then. You know, I guess they were, at, at that time, I guess the equivalent of, you know, what became the paparazzi in the mm-hmm. Princess Diana era, yes. you know, uh, or I guess they're still around. Although, again, in the last year, no one leaves the house. But, um, you know, telling her she won a beauty contest and we just want to find out more about her life. Can, I, can you believe that? And go, oh, well, by the, way, by the that, way, it really isn't why I called. I, and why wouldn't you just get the information and then just hang up? Maybe not tell her that mm. that's what happened. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't condone that either. No, but I geez. don't know. Uh, it's just bad. That's yep. Yeah. Okay. So a few days later, a mysterious package appeared at the LA examiner's offices. A note, a note pasted from newspaper lettering uh, said, here's the Delilah's belongings letter to follow. It's a bunch of her stuff. Um, birth certificate, social security card, photos, address book. That book had some pages torn out of it. Cops can't get any prints. So they try to track down everybody in the address book. Uh, so did these letters that followed, you said they led really nowhere? No, they didn't lead anywhere. There were a handful of letters that followed, and they weren't even sure they were sent by. Uh-huh. I mean, it, for all we know, it's kind of like some of the Jack the Ripper murders, mm-hmm. or letters, I yeah. mean, that you know we don't know who really sent them. And uh, all we know is that the first package did have Beth's stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Um it doesn't mean it was sent by the killer. It could have been sent by anybody who had the stuff. Sure. And so then, you know, more letters followed. But by then, the newspapers had already run all these stories about, you know, oh, look, here's all the stuff that came. Here's photographs of it. And they say that there's more letters coming. Well, as many people, the hundreds of people that confessed to this thing, why wouldn't people who were just as nutty send letters? You know, so, 
you will never know how many of those. That's why I didn't get into the That's details fair. of okay. all those other letters. There was just no point. It's fair. So police thought it might have been a serial killer at the time. Are, are we going to talk about lipstick murders or Cleveland torso murders? Or do you um, tell well, me? Or no. What, what well, the lipstick murders, let's just hold on to that. Okay. Uh, but the Cleveland torso murders have been going on for like 20 years. And they were a series of, of murders carried out probably by the same killer in Cleveland in the 1930s and 1940s. Mm -hmm. And they were never solved. Um, It was just people were, they kept finding these bodies in this bad part of town along the the river that runs through Cleveland. And um, the, the police were under a ton of pressure, but it really ruined the career of the guy who was the, what they called the public safety commissioner. It was kind of like the, the police chief slash, you know, Commissioner Gordon, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, But that guy happened to be Elliot Ness. Oh, yeah. From Chicago, the the Untouchables. He was the public safety commissioner of Cleveland at the time. And it pretty much destroyed his career because, you know, one of the reasons they brought him to Cleveland when he first came there, he he really did crack down on the mob in Cleveland and Mm -hmm. wiped most of them out. I mean, he got rid of a lot of the problems, the illegal gambling and all kinds of stuff in Cleveland at the time. So they thought, shit, we've got Elliot Ness here. He's going to solve this. Yeah. And then couldn't. Oh, man. Ran for mayor, lost, um, was turned into an alcoholic. I mean, it's a a really sad story (laughs) um, because Elliot Ness, I think, no matter what, I mean, you could leave out the Kevin Costner movie, and though I love it, there isn't one thing in it that's true, mm-hmm. um, other than those people actually existed. That's about sure. it. Uh, but Elliot Ness, you know, it really is a real American hero. This was a guy who really s- did what he said he was going to do and stood by his principles, and mm-hmm. you know, and it, it just destroyed him. It's a fascinating era in history, though. If you ever get a chance, there are a couple of really good books about. Uh, the torso killings in Elliot yeah. Ness. Interesting. Um, but yeah, so, th- but because this guy was slicing up bodies, mm-hmm. they thought, well, maybe it's the torso killer that's come out here, you know, but it wasn't. Fair so. enough. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of these suspects. So Hanson and Manley are both cleared. Yeah. Uh, like you said, a bunch of false confessions and things like that. There was a promising lead uh, with an army corp- corporal, Joseph uh, Dumay. Dumay? Yeah, um, Dumay. Dumay. Uh, so, yeah, well, say, it seemed like it at first. So, yeah. Well, yeah. okay. I was going to say, you know what they say? Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so when I take PTO, not, all bets yeah, are it's, off. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what that boiled a down to. A 42-day furlough. He's covered in blood. He <laughs> doesn't know what happened. Like, yeah. what kind of hangover yeah, shit? That is that is the on. hangover, isn't it? Yeah. yeah Somebody, you know, roofied the guy and that was the end of it. So So that that's just a bizarre <laughs> like I yeah, he didn't exactly gloss over it, but I was kinda like, wait a sec, wait. Yeah. So well there's what? I mean I I didn't get into great detail know, with these, but you know. Uh Dr. Patrick O'Reilly's also investigated. Has it makes sense. He has a conviction for assault with a deadly weapon in conjunction with quote, taking his secretary <laughs> to a motel, sadistically beating her uh to almost to death for apparently no other reason than to satisfy. So in other words, he was into like BDSM before that was popular. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about here. And, was you know, she, was she I guess she wasn't it? into it as much as he was. I think they call that assault. Yeah. Or, or somebody found out about it. And so then she, you know, we'll never know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's but, hard to say. Uh, he's but. also married to the daughter of uh, LAPD captain. Right. So that might have had something to do with um, getting some heat off of him. Uh, Dr. Walter Bailey, who lived nearby, was also looked at. He had a degenerative brain disease, they found out, in connection to Beth through his daughter. And when he died, his widow claimed that he had, quote, a terrible secret. 
and, and claim that that was the reason why his mistress was the main. I don't think that's probably why. You don't think so? No, it's probably about just like the people who were, you know, reporting their boyfriends that had broken up with them to get back at the, Rogue, you know, right, it's, right, it's right. that kind of stuff. It's Ugh. just, you, I mean, it's, no a, it's fury, weird. Right? right, exactly. It is weird that, you know, there was a slight connection there and they did live close to where the body was dumped, mm-hmm. but... You know, not so I mean, much. there's still, you really can't connect it right. any more than you can connect Woody, Woody Guthrie. Guthrie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Woody Guthrie, even. And then uh, author Mary Pacios uh, suggested Orson Welles due to yeah, his mannequin scenes. There are some interesting connections, though. That they there should, are, put together, I guess. But nothing is solid. Yeah, oh. um, but I did, I did like, at least, you know, she was trying to connect some of these dots um, that were that were <laughs> interesting. So we don't know who the killer is. But we well, do you know, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, before we go yeah, any yeah, further, yeah, yeah. before we go any further, and since we're on the Orson Welles thing. Yeah, please. I mean, you know, he is regarded as this genius of American cinema, mostly because of... War Citizen the Kane. Well, the War yeah. of the Worlds thing was was super clever, and that's what got his foot in the door. But Citizen Kane is regarded as like number one on the list, the greatest film, sure. American film ever made, kind of thing. And but, but it's fine. Have you, I mean, it's it's good. I mean, it is good, and I could see for its time, it's it's groundbreaking. But you know, and he's made he made some other good movies after that too. I like The Third Man and and uh, Touch of Evil. He's got some good movies, but then <laughs> then he becomes most famous for like selling wine. Now, you really? you probably don't remember all this, and I no. was well. You couldn't no, because you not. wouldn't have been born. But <laughs> right. I mean, I didn't know if you, you um, knew about it. Any, but no, no. I remember being a kid, and all I knew about Orson Welles was that he did the the wine commercials. We will sell no wine before it's time. You don't remember? No, you know, you've seen no, it. I don't, it's not familiar. Yeah, so anybody who hasn't seen him like Cody, I would encourage you to go to YouTube huh. and look for some Orson Welles commercials because he did a lot of commercials, and he he blew up into this. That was always sort of like a big joke when I was a kid, like on mm-hmm. Johnny Carson and things, where how big Orson Welles was. But he would do like frozen vegetable commercials and stuff. And there is a there's a recording of him selling peas. And if you can find it, mm-hmm. it's like it's like all the outtakes from this commercial. It is fucking hilarious no because he's like real pompous about this pea commercial and he's mad because it doesn't make any sense. And you got to find it. <laughs> okay. If you have any interest in it at all, I will look you, for it's it. gotta be, it's out there somewhere. Somebody and, send it to me. And, and go to, it. go to YouTube and look up Orson Welles commercials and you'll find the, like the wine commercials and stuff. Yeah. And some of our listeners who are, you know, my age or older, you know, really like lots, lots older, like Renee Cruz, um, will remember when he was on TV doing those. But okay. I do remember them as a kid. And that's all I knew about Orson Welles. And then I kept, as I got a little older, I'm like, Citizen Kane, Orson Welles? The guy from the wine commercials? Wow. Like, what? You know, and so it was very strange. But that's yeah, amazing. I mean, Orson Welles, I mean, he did not, he was not the Black Dahlia sure. killer. And But I did, you know, as I did point out, I think he probably would have appreciated being accused, yeah. to be honest with you. but Was that you know. also a jab at Renee? Was that, it was. Just, okay, it was but she's used one. to it because they do a tour all the time. So, yeah. Also, there's a, this is like a random little tidbit too, but in there's a, don't ask me why I know this, Garfield's Thanksgiving special that they put out in 1989. Oh, yeah. And they, if you ever read the Garfield comics, they have a bit sure. where, with the with the scale that always gives him shit and like talks to him when he stands okay. on it and stuff. And in that special... The, he stands on the scale and the scale's like judging by your weight you must be Orson Welles there it is and it's See? like wh- take a jab that was at for, Orson that Welles. was for adults watching okay. it especially in 1989 yeah. that was a big joke at the time okay okay yeah. See, we don't do that anymore don't, don't, people don't make those jokes anymore right. because it's you 
know, insensitive. It's, it's insensitive. Yes. But, I mean, which, you know, gets rid of movies from my youth, many of them, <laughs> but you know, so. Oh, well, but we, yeah, the Orson Welles thing always cracked me up. That's why the only reason I had to include it. Yeah, I mean, it's just I like ridiculous, it. but it, I, I had to include it because it always makes me laugh because I will periodically listen to the peas thing and it's really funny. Yeah, I'm gonna look for it, but <laughs> if really somebody funny. finds it before I do, send it my way. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll track it down and if I know what else does, I'll send it to you. Perfect. Uh, so we don't know who the killer is, but we do have a list of suspects and Troy's theory, but that's all coming up in two weeks for part two and the conclusion of the Black Dahlia murder. Um, I'd like to give just a couple quick shout outs here to our new patrons, the people that help support the show and let us do what we do and make the show sound better. So just want to give a quick shout out to Steven and Leslie. And it is now time for our Ghost Riders segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. This first letter is from Jeff, and it says it's titled New Morbid Listener. It says, Hello, Troy and Cody. I really enjoy the show. I get to listen while I work as a machinist. The other day, a coworker who's on night shift came in a little early to ask what I listened to, so I recommended American Hauntings. The next day, he came in and told me how much he loved it. He's hooked. Another member of the Morbid Curious. Well, thank you, Jeff. That's awesome. Cool. Um, that's how the show grows, really. Um, so we really appreciate yeah, that's it. That's why. Always push everybody. Just I don't care. Tell your tell your, friend, tell your yeah. family. Tell anybody you meet. Yeah, so tell your weird friends. Feel all free. That. You know. Uh, this last one comes to us from Marie, and it's just titled "Thanks." And the message says, "I imagine this will uh, this be a meme later, uh, but I found you all during the pandemic. Love the series. Thank you all for the amazing podcast. Yeah, I think that's gonna be a thing. It's just like, yeah, well, I found this during the pandemic or during the pandemic, and like we're just all gonna remember and have PTSD flashbacks." <laughs> Oh, boy. Chateau in California. Almost every night here, there's a wine-tasting party. And one of the favorites is Parmesan Chablis. It's light and crisp. It's delicious. The wine you drink the most should be the best. And they take special care with it here because they know Chablis is America's most popular wine. Parmesan Chablis. I recommend it. Parmesan will sell no wine before its time. Oh, wow. Oh, that's Orson Welles, <laughs> that huh? Was, yep, that was an Orson Welles wine commercial wow. from 1979. Jeez, so. it looked like it was from 1979. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it? Yeah, and sounds like it. And he's the size of a barn. <laughs> you know, he really blew up in his later days. Oh, so. man. You know? But again, what a great voice, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, he voiced the shadow for a while on the radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. And those are some of the best episodes i'm a big fan of the shadow always have been i love the radio shows but mm -hmm. he was a great shadow so i mean again good voice for what he was doing yeah, yeah. i liked it uh that just, yeah. sorry that just came so out of nowhere no, i didn't I know, know what he was doing yeah over I, sorry about that uh, i just no. thought oh, i'm gonna throw I'm gonna, i gotta find it so i've talked it up yeah, yeah. i gotta find one oh, i'm so. glad i'm glad all public domain i would have so forgot about it eventually yeah yeah perfect yeah, yeah. stuff's really old yeah. well that's all i got man all right cool cool well this was an interesting it was an interesting episode. The it next was. one I think will be more so to a lot of people because I'm going to crush Their the, dreams. The, the dreams of some people. Yeah. Um, although really people who have listened to me for a while or maybe have read my book know that uh, who I think did not kill the Black Dahlia. Yeah. So I'm going to have to spend some time on that the next episode. I'm excited so for that. We are. So all right, buddy. I'm good. So listen, as I said, tell everybody, listen to the podcast. And somebody, for the, for the love of God, give us one more review Just so we can more. break the thousand. 
So and then uh, I can just stop. I can just not care anymore. And then, yeah, then Cody will not care. So and you could start sending in your ideas for our hundredth episode. Yeah. So Lydia already sent me hers. So we'll see who yeah. sends in the next one. Yeah, so, fine. And we could do a variety of things on that episode. We could. So okay. If there's some things that people want to hear about or us to talk about, let us know. Um, and yeah. we'll start putting ideas together. I like it. Yeah. Instagram. Uh, we'll be there before Twitter, you know it. So um, American Hollings Podcast Gmail.com. Yeah, actually, I think we'll be there this year. Oh, we'll definitely be there yeah, this year. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it this year. That's only, what, 17, 17 more episodes. So, well, that's 34, 34 weeks. Uh, uh, maybe we won't. But anyway, it's math. coming. So we should probably start planning Numbers, now. yeah. So because since I don't plan out anything else, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I have a list, but I don't know how long anything will be. But anyway... Let's let's finish this yeah, up. So, yeah, yeah, Okay, so like, can we just stop? No, it's this episode of the American Hauntings podcast Jesus. is written by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Find more commercials. If you're not a regular listener of the podcast, we hope you'll check out by... I shouldn't have said that. By Wiggy Does the History, Hauntings, Legends, Lore, and the Dark Side of American History. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. I'm trying to beat Troy before he gets the commercial. If you're a regular listener, we'll hope you take the time else. to review us on the Apple Podcast app. We have 999 reviews and share the show with your um, friends. You know, neighbors, this relatives, frozen peas thing pass is on the street, whoever. six minutes long. Oh, hell so no. I'm not, I can't play that. No, don't do that. Uh, we couldn't, wouldn't but do the show without you. it is frozen peas. It's Orson Welles, obscure audio, Orson Welles outtakes frozen peas. It's not going to stop me. If you're a, if you're a fan, great, then you also you know that American Hauntings is not just this podcast. Well, listen to it at the bar. Uh, it's books, tours, events, and more on our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. For those of you who write to us and tell us you wish you had posted shows more often, well, you can have fresh content if you support the show on Patreon. It's not the only perk that you get either. You'll get commercials from the 1970s. There's discount shirts, stuff in the mail, and all kinds of things. For those who don't understand how important our I'll Patreon is... I'll let Orson Welles interrupt you today. Go back and listen to the first season, and then listen to this one. Yeah, that's right. Patreon's what made it all get better. It wasn't all my hard work and blood, sweat, and tears. It was, it was mostly just Patreon. Patreon. Uh, so check it out at patreon.com slash americanhauntings. If you have comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes old commercials or just want to tell us what you really think of us we're reachable via email on twitter instagram facebook messages in a bottle because we'll sell no podcast before it's time (laughs) and telegram that's how we should sign off in the future (laughs) until next time (laughs) goodbye so long see you later (laughs) that was fun that was fun it's fucking hot in here god it's a fucking (laughs) oven in here (laughs)